This is a commonspace.eu podcast. From the city of The Hague, welcome to Global Europe Unpacked, a podcast about Europe's engagement with its neighborhood and the wider world. Well, I think Americans would be the first to welcome a more capable Europe. That's been a theme of American presidents back to John F. Kennedy. Hello and welcome back to Global Europe Unpacked, the podcast that looks at global trends affecting the European continent and the growing ambition for the EU to become a global or geopolitical power. I'm your host, Will Murray, and in today's episode, we're going to be looking across the Atlantic at what the administration of incoming President Joe Biden means for the EU-US relationship. To give some insight from the States, I'll shortly be speaking to Dr. Dan Hamilton, Director of the Global Europe Programme at the Wilson Centre in Washington, D.C. But first... Here's my colleague Nina to look at the current state of the transatlantic relationship. Amongst senior officials of the European institutions in Brussels, one could detect an air of excitement over the last weeks at the prospect of a new administration in Washington, D.C. and a new era in transatlantic relations. After four years of President Donald Trump, the United States of America appears considerably removed from Europe. In Brussels and in many European capitals, Trump's legacy is characterized by an American rejection of long-standing multilateral commitments and institutions and an America-first policy, which in practice often meant frequent unfriendly moves against long-standing European allies. Trump's presidency has been described as a wake-up call, a cautionary example that Europe cannot be reliant on the US for its security and must become a geostrategic entity in its own right, independently responsible for the safety of its member states and the stability of its neighborhood. During the presidential election campaign, Joe Biden often emphasized the importance of the United States working closely with European allies. So, with President Biden safely installed in the White House, are we to expect a new golden era for the transatlantic relationship? What will a Biden presidency mean for the EU-US relationship? What do the new administration's foreign policy priorities look like? And how will these coincide with Europe's own priorities and concerns? And how will the Biden administration perceive this desire of the EU to become a more geostrategically independent actor? Ultimately, is Europe in fact ready for a more equal relationship with the United States, especially when it comes to defense and security issues? Last week, I spoke about some of these issues and more to my guest. Here's what he had to say. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Dan Hamilton, Amongst other things, Dan is the Austrian Marshall Plan Foundation Distinguished Fellow and Director at the Global Europe Programme at the Wilson Centre in Washington, D.C. He's held a variety of senior positions in the U.S. Department of State, including Deputy Assistant Secretary for European Affairs, responsible for NATO, OSCE and transatlantic security issues, Nordic Baltic and Balkan Affairs. He is considered to be one of the United States' foremost experts on modern Europe, the transatlantic relationship, and U.S. foreign policy. Dan, thank you very much for taking the time to join me today. Pleasure to be here. So, uh, Dan, could you start by, by telling me what are likely to be the main priorities of, of the Biden administration as, as far as foreign policy is concerned? Well, uh, just to preface, these are all personal remarks of mine uh, uh, and uh, don't represent anyone else. Um, sure. You know, I think if you think about the situation in the United States uh, coming to the inauguration of Joe Biden, you see the United States is in some turmoil. Uh, we have a raging pandemic. We have a massive economic slowdown because of that. Uh, we have a, a political crisis uh, uh, involving the second impeachment of Donald Trump. And that trial in the Senate is likely to go on. 
And we have a massive social reckoning in this country about institutional and systemic racism that I think in the end was uh, what propelled uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris uh, to office. So if you ask about foreign policy priorities, I think people abroad is going to have to understand uh, Joe Biden is going to pursue in a way an America first uh, policy, which is you have to get things right at home in order to have much of a credible foreign policy. Uh, they can, as we say, walk and chew gum at the same time. But uh, I think now, perhaps more than any time in recent history, foreign policy begins at home. So one will see a massive focus of the administration in its early time to get a new plan. The president-elect announced parts of it yesterday on uh, COVID relief, on economic uh, relief. And uh, there will be just everything I think that's going to be done with health, environment, climate, all the things that he's talking about will be rooted in this notion. It's all about making us stronger at home and moving from sick society and sick economy to healthy society and economy. It's a really important premise to talk about, uh, you know, just the foreign policy actions. So if one takes that as the frame, then President-elect Biden has said uh, there are some major priorities he has internationally. The major one is really repositioning the United States with its partners and allies to confront common challenges together. He is probably the most transatlanticist president uh, since George Bush Sr. And his administration is likely to be the most transatlantic since Bill Clinton. So his instinct as a person, born of his experience, is to turn to Europe as what he has said himself as a partner of, quote, first resort on most any issue that we can think of. So I believe he goes into office thinking the transatlantic partnership and alliance are indispensable to getting things done, uh, not only across the Atlantic, but around the world. But at the same time, I think he believes and his administration understands that being indispensable doesn't mean necessarily all-encompassing, and that the world has changed enough so that, while indispensable, the transatlantic partnership in, in its own is insufficient to really mobilize the kind of coalitions that will be needed to tackle the priorities he's identified, climate change and energy transition, uh, dealing with uh, Russia, uh, dealing with the rise of China. I think he will treat those as different categories, not this frameage great power competition the Trump administration used, I think conflates the two powers in a way that doesn't distinguish adequately. He will have to take on issues in the Middle East, of course, but you'll see uh, maybe uh, less of an inter interventionist approach. Uh, and as I said, he will think about, he has already proclaimed a need for a summit for democracy and to sort of shore up again those uh, the, that the foundation, the value foundation uh, of a U.S. foreign policy. Okay, so, so you say it's got to be an America first policy. And uh, I guess that kind of argues that, that Trump did hack into a very real concern of many Americans, which is that the, the U.S. Is, is almost too outward looking and, and not looking at at exactly how these international deals uh, affect the American people, um, or at least not showing the value of this internationalism for the American people. Is that fair to say? I think the, no, the America First notion that I use, it would be very different from the one President Trump had used. 
Uh, and it's mainly to say that the United States is not going to be able to help many countries and partners around the world if it can't help itself. So that's what I mean by foreign policy beginning at home. Um, President Trump came in at a very different time. We're in a time of chaos, in part, largely, not only, but largely because of his doing. So President Biden will have to kind of get out of that by being stronger at home. The President Trump, America first, was to go beat up on other countries, including allies, and sort of whip them into line into a U.S., uh, toe the line of a U.S. approach. Mm -hmm. President-elect Biden is more likely to consult with allies on, on the question, what should we do together to deal with some common challenges and to be open to listening and I think take a more somewhat humble approach given what's happened in our country uh, to uh, to those efforts. That's a, that's a very big difference. Um, and I mean, how do you see U.S. support for multilateral institutions going forward? So these have been under attack during the Trump presidency, notably the WHO, the UN, and uh, NATO, and the U.S. has considerably distanced itself from them. So will we see a return of the U.S. to these institutions, or is this trend likely to continue to a certain degree under Biden? No, not at all. He is, he, on day one, he will return uh, the United States to the WHO or reaffirm. I don't think we really formally actually uh, left yet. Uh, he wants to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord uh, on day one. Uh, he will uh, re-engage with the World Trade Organization, uh, probably together with the EU and Japan and others, to try to reform it, not by blowing it up, but by reforming it from within. He is a staunch NATO supporter. He has called NATO a, quote, sacred duty. Uh, that's very different wording than President Trump. I believe I can't speak for the administration. I believe he is likely to call for a new NATO strategic concept to update the alliance and point it to the future. Uh, that guidance document hasn't been updated for 10 years. So I think that'll be a new process for NATO. I think you'll see a turn uh, to try to create a more effective and strategic partnership worth the name with the European Union. And so in a whole you know, range of issues, the instinct will be to be uh, multilateral in terms of engaging and showing up <laughs> at some of these meetings where the U.S. under the Trump administration didn't even bother to show up. Uh, so that'll be a big difference. And um, are we likely to see a continuation of U.S. foreign policy moving towards the Asia-Pacific region under the Biden administration? Um, you mentioned earlier that uh, he has a more nuanced view. He doesn't see Russia and China as one and the same. But if there is a continued move to the Asia-Pacific region, uh, what consequences does this have for Europe? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I think for decades, I, I'm always asked that question by Europeans who seem to fear that the U.S. is sort of switching its heart from Europe to Asia in some way. Uh, I think that says more about Europe than it does about the United States. Because if you think about it, we've had a Pacific coast now for some time. Uh, we are both an Atlantic and a Pacific power. Uh, we don't have the luxury of flipping loyalties or you know, pivoting uh, from one to the other in a way that diminishes uh, the other side. You have to do both. The United States is a global power. It is global in its uh, alliances and its networks. It provides uh, a central frame within Europe for Europe's security and, and our mutual prosperity. Uh, it does the same in Asia, in the Asia-Indo-Pacific, if you will. 
Uh, it just does it in different ways because of the circumstances are different in that part of the country, or by the part of the world. So it's not switching anything. I think it's instructive that Europeans ask this question because it says Europe maybe not paying as much attention to that part of the world as maybe it should. Mm -hmm. The locus of many, you know, potentially cataclysmic uh, conflicts are still in the Asia Pacific region. Uh, you know, uh, for instance, none of the uh, resolve uh, issues, maybe even from back to World War II, have been fully resolved in that region. Japan did not pursue a, a policy of reconciliation that Germany did after World War II. It still has big conflicts, even with allies like South Korea, uh, much less to speak of uh, issues with China's rise, which has now uh, sort of consolidated uh, U.S. view on what is important, and also even push countries like Vietnam, a communist country, uh, to consider uh, closer ties to the United States because of their concerns about China. Um, the whole issue of maritime boundaries are important for the global uh, commons. Uh, what are the rules for the global commons when countries create artificial islands in the middle of the ocean to try to extend their boundaries? Mm -hmm. uh, these are kinds of issues that affect everyone, including Europe. So what happens in the Pacific is not distant from Europe. It is actually quite central to Europe's own, uh, you know, uh, efforts going forward. And the U.S. has to play that role. It would hope that our European colleagues would step up and also approach uh, and have a more of a strategy to the Indo-Pacific than it seems they do. Well, I, I guess it kind of leads on to, to uh, this recent comprehensive agreement on investment that the EU and China came to at the end of the year. So how will this prospective EU-China investment deal affect relations with the incoming Biden presidency when we have seen his transition team indicate that they're not particularly happy with this? Well, I think what you see is so often with European Union, it's what we would call a left-hand, right-hand problem. There are parts of the European Union and the, and the Commission and the Parliament sending one message to the United States about a, turning a page and a new chapter, and then there are others kind of just doing their job or so immersed in their portfolio, they haven't looked up. Uh, and uh, so it's a confused message, frankly. Um, I don't think, frankly, this will be too much of an irritant uh, because um, I don't think, frankly, the deal will go through as it currently stands uh, because of European opposition. There is major opposition in the European Parliament to provisions of this deal, particularly with regard to Chinese commitments to labor rights, human rights issues. Uh, you'll see a huge blowback. You're already seeing parts of it. Uh, a number of member states are uh, already questioning what was done here. Uh, Germany had a particular interest in pushing this through through their presidency of the EU because of German uh, lobby, frankly, uh, business lobby doing business with China. And Chancellor Merkel wanted a legacy issue. This investment agreement had been you know, stalled for years and years. So they got it across the finish line, but I don't think it'll, it'll get you know across the real finish line. And there'll be many, many discussions still to come. So that's why I'm, not, I'm less hung up about it. I think the issue is uh, what President-elect has said, we should uh, come around and, and make ourselves stronger at home together. That is how we can best confront challenges that China faces. It seems to me that a diplomatic way of doing it with the EU 
would not be to beat up on our allies, as President Trump did, but to simply take the EU's own frame that it says it, it uses to talk about China. And let's make that a transatlantic frame. Where is China potentially a partner for us? Seems to me there are some areas like climate change, energy transition, anti-piracy issues, uh, non-proliferation issues with North Korea or Iran, for instance. You can identify a number of areas. Uh, where is China a competitor? That's the second EU uh, criteria. And here I think the US and the EU agree on many, many areas in which uh, Chinese uh, practices, failure to live up to its WTO commitments, create some common concern. And then third, where is China a systemic rival? That's the term the EU uses. Yeah. I think that's the term the EU hasn't spent much time thinking about, frankly, even though you use it. Whereas the US has spent deep, deep thought on that topic. Uh, where is China trying to create alternative institutions to the rules-based order? Where is it trying to set new standards in areas of emerging technology that may challenge sort of the values basis of some of our uh, you know, ethical principles on technology use? Uh, how is it uh, conditioning uh, uh, its own economic aid and, and issues like that? Where is it playing a role in other multilateral institutions? There's a whole host of things there that would be a very good US-European discussion probably with other democratic allies, not just uh, transatlantic. But you mentioned the, you know, the incentives of Chancellor Merkel to do this, be they uh, for the benefits of German companies, be they for uh, establishing some form of, of legacy. Um, but could it also, as some people have suggested, be an indication that the Europeans or some within Europe no longer feel as though they can trust America to be there when, when, when they need them. I mean, there's been some people saying that they would be able to get a stronger deal if they'd waited until the Biden administration came in. And, uh, and yet uh, these warnings or suggestions were, were somewhat ignored as much as you say that this won't go through in the end. And they did at least come to, a, to come to an agreement on this, which suggests that Merkel wanted to, wanted to try and finish something here before Biden was actually in power. Um, is that fair to say? Uh, probably, but again, I think it was less about the United States than Europe, and particularly Germany, trying to uh, get some sort of extra uh, contact with China. I just think, uh, again, it ignores some basics. The analogy I try to use is uh, the EU-China economic relationship is like a two-lane highway. Uh, it's mainly goods. It's flows of goods, on, really only flows of goods. Uh, and it's crowded. It's a crowded highway. And, you know, if anything chills, you know, a two-lane highway when traffic is bustling, you got you got a backup. You have a traffic mishap. Yeah. What they've been trying to do is create a third lane on the two-lane highway, and that's an investment highway to facilitate a lot of things. And that was the you know result of this agreement. Uh, but if you look at the transatlantic economy, it's like a six-lane autobahn. And it's it's not, you know, goods, yes. Uh, but how about services? Yeah. Uh, we are the largest services economies in the world, each other's most important source of jobs in those economies. And uh, th there is no comparative uh, relationship with China and services. Uh, that's where most of the jobs are in our economy. So we should could keep that in mind. The investment relationship between the United States and Europe is the deepest and strongest in the world. It exists, you know, and has for years. 
Uh, European companies are the major investors in the United States, and American companies are major investors in Europe. Uh, research and development and innovation. We are each other's much more important uh, you know, partners in the leading edge of the economy. And I mentioned jobs. You know, there are no jobs coming from China for Europe. There are no jobs coming to the United States from China. Uh, they're coming. We come from each other. We, you know, employ up to 15 million people on each side of the Atlantic because of those. So you don't want to do anything to chill the transatlantic economy because that's actually where your job is usually and where your bread is buttered. Uh, and I think there's just a skewed debate in, in parts of the German economy because of the power of certain kinds of industries, but that's not where the German economic interest really lies. So some have argued that there's a need for Europe to play a more active role on the international stage, and particularly in conflict situations in its neighborhood without a reliance always on the United States. This is an issue that's been recurring in EU-US relations since even before Trump. So what will the stance of the Biden administration be on this issue? Well, I think Americans would be the first to welcome a more capable Europe. Uh, that's been a theme of American presidents back to John F. Kennedy. Yeah. So there's no uh, problem there. Uh, the problem is, uh, where, where, you know, where, what is Europe doing to develop those capabilities? Um, it seems to be developing more process rather than products. Uh, you know, I think you will find American support if French soldiers going to the Sahel uh, and Mali don't have to fly there in American airplanes. Uh, you probably find a lot of U.S. support for that. If Europeans don't have to rely on U.S. logistics, communications, intelligence, lots of things like that, you'll find American support for that because we got lots of other stuff to do. Uh, it's very hard to, uh, you know, can talk to 300 million Americans why they are supporting 500 million Europeans uh, on basic issues of security and defense. Uh, people just don't get it. Uh, President Trump did tap into that vein. Uh, but you know the two percent benchmark that Biden that was set for NATO that every NATO country uh, spend two percent of its defense, that was set by the Obama Biden administration, not President Trump. So it's not a Trump thing. Uh, there's a long tradition. I think the question will be, can we define that uh, unity on transatlantic issues as a more capable Europe, not one that is wrapped up in this mystifying term of strategic autonomy? which, uh, frankly, nobody understands. Not even within Europe, uh, people don't understand. Uh, and I think that kind of gets in the way of a more practical discussion on how we can have a Europe that is uh, America's counterpart in the world, not its counterweight, which has been sort of the effort of the last four years. So just as a final question, are there issues now that will um, lead on into the into the Biden administration and uh, cause issues in the EU-US relationship. Yes, I think so. Uh, the Trump administration is leaving, you know, the Biden administration is sort of an inbox of issues with Europe. Uh, some of them are sort of irritating, and, uh, and the Biden administration will, of course, have to address those, even if its instinct is to move ahead with Europe on a broad frame. So, for instance, the European Court of Justice uh, last summer invalidated what's called the privacy shield. This was a way for personal data flows to flow across the Atlantic, uh, even though the, the legal regimes on both sides of the Atlantic are different. It, it, it rendered that null and void. 
and that has chilled, you know, the Translake economy right at a time of the COVID, you know, induced recession. Uh, and data flows now are the lifeblood of our economy. So if we can't figure out a way to regulate and agree on how that can continue, that's a problem. Uh, it, it can't really be renegotiated simply because this was a court decision uh, and it has to do with different legal regimes. You'll see the other debate in Europe right now when uh, Twitter and the other social media companies cut off the president. Uh, uh, there was an outcry in Europe, even though they didn't like what he was saying, they were trying to defend his right to free speech. So then that the tech companies had the power to do that is a symbol of the different legal regimes we have in our uh, two sides of the Atlantic. So we have to address all of that. That's sort of a you know digital disconnects happening across the Atlantic that are holding us both back. Uh, that's going to be important. Another one is are the tariffs that were imposed by President Trump in the name of national security on his own allies on steel and aluminum with some threats of more to come. Uh, and uh, the Biden administration will have to confront that issue. Do we still put tariffs on our allies for reasons of national security, which is a hard thing to quite understand, and they'll have to figure that out. Uh, the U.S. Trade Representative has announced that digital taxation regimes in a number of European countries are illegal under the WTO and has threatened retaliation, but has deferred that until the Biden administration. Uh, the U.S. stepped away from multilateral talks on digital taxation with the OECD. So the Biden administration will have to decide. I think it will want to go back to those multilateral talks. But that'll, again, take time. And right now, uh, we could have not another digital sort of skirmish uh, over over that. Uh, there's the whole WTO issue. Uh, what's the future of the World Trade Organization? The Trump administration was basically trying to blow it up. Mm -hmm. uh, the Biden administration, I think, will try to reform it, as I mentioned. But uh, it's an issue. If it's not working, uh, we have to fix it. And that'll happen you know, right away. Uh, and that's a problem. There's also the Boeing Airbus uh, dispute that's been going on for 17 years, uh, but there might be prospect to settle it now. You can't, and it's all about subsidies. You know, each government, the United States and the EU, were declared in violation of WTO rules. We're each rule breakers, uh, and if we if we can't resolve this issue ourselves, neither of us can address the issue, the far larger issue of Chinese industrial subsidies. Yeah. We're not credible by saying, China, hey, this is not good when we're doing it ourselves. Sure. So there's an incentive, I think, to solve that issue, too. So there's a whole host of things that have to be sort of cleared away uh, before a, a true, you know, really cooperative relationship will start to emerge. I think on that note, Dan, we'll, uh, we'll finish the conversation here. But I, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to speak to me. And uh, I guess we'll see, uh, we'll see what happens in the, in the coming uh, years. So thank you very much. Okay. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. So thanks again to Dan for taking the time to share his thoughts. It was a very interesting conversation, and there were a few things that especially stood out for me. Firstly, the fact that Biden will need to pursue an America first agenda that whilst very different to that of Trump means first prioritizing domestic issues in order to be effective abroad. That considered, it was interesting to hear Dan lay out some of the foreign policy priorities of the Biden administration that the new administration is likely to be the most transatlantic since the 1990s, that Biden will bring back the US to the multilateral institutions on day one, and that climate change and dealing with Russia and the rise of China as nuanced actors is at the top of his agenda. 
He also spoke about the fact that the US would be very supportive of what he called a more capable Europe, and Europe playing a more active role on the world stage. However, he warned that it's not clear in the US how Europe intends to do this, and that there appears to be a lot of process, but not a lot of product being created towards this end. There are also a number of issues in the EU-US relationship that will carry over from the Trump administration and need to be resolved. But in general, it's clear that the Biden administration will be looking to renew and improve the EU-US relationship going forward. In next week's episode of Global Europe Unpacked, we're going to be looking at Brexit, what it means for EU foreign policy and Europe's position in the world. We're going to be looking at what the UK contributed to EU diplomacy and what's likely to change now that Brexit has taken place. If you enjoyed this episode, please do like and share. And if you'd like more news analysis and commentary on the EU and its neighbourhood, please go to www.commonspace.eu or on Twitter at commonspaceeu. Thanks for listening. Global Europe Unpacked is a commonspace.eu podcast produced and recorded in The Hague, the Netherlands. (laughs) 